This week on A Little Help from My Friends, we have S.J. Lim. Uh, S.J. is the RUF campus minister at WashU, uh, Washington University in St. Louis. And what you need to know about S.J. is that he has incredible sneakers. I feel really insecure about my shoes whenever we hang out. Um, He's really a beautiful guy, really insightful. I think you're going to love this sermon as we all need some wisdom for control freaks. Uh, uh, Have a listen. God, your word is like a double-edged sword. It's able to cut through to the very deepest part of our hearts. I pray that you would do that to convict us not only of our waywardness, but to also help us to know your kindnesses and your mercies. That you would remake us in your image and into your likeness and live unto you. Lord, I do pray for those who are discouraged, um, that in Ecclesiastes you would have a good word for them. And for those who have been really busy with life, and maybe have not had the chance to slow down, Lord, would you use this time to slow their hearts down, to hear from your word. So we ask for your spirit to do this in Jesus. Amen. Many years ago, my, my little cousin from Korea came to visit me um, in Chicago. And he'd been taking like English, uh, like English courses at school, right? But he was here for a whole summer with his mom, with, with my aunt, for like kind of English language immersion, okay? And so my aunt asked me if I could take him to the library, to the bookstore or whatnot, and kind of get him reading some books um, and just converse with him and whatnot. And so I decided to take him to Barnes & Noble, and we go into the children's section, because I'm like, I'm trying to, you know, determine what his, like, skill level is. And so in the children's section is this, like, whole, like, wall of, of, of yellow books, and I immediately recognize what these are. I'm like, there's a whole section of Curious George books, and I'm like, this is awesome. I love Curious George books. Like, when I was a kid, I loved them. He's going to love them. And so I just pick one out at random, and I give, give it to him, and he starts reading. And I'm thinking, okay, like 10 minutes, 15 minutes tops, he should get through it. But 30 minutes had passed, and he's still not done. And so I, I interject, and I'm finally like, cuz, like, what's, what's the matter? Why aren't you done with this book yet? And he goes, I'm having a hard time understanding it. And I said, I looked at him with like just, you know, disappointment. <laughs> and I'm like about to scold him. I'm like... You know, you really, I was about to get you a, a, a much harder book. Like, you should really be past this. I'm like, give me this book. And as, as soon as I look at this book, I am just filled with shame. <laughs> because I realized that this book says Jorge El Curioso. <laughs> I gave him a Spanish book. <laughs> I'm like, oh my goodness. And I'm like apologizing profusely to this cousin of mine who's much, much younger than me. Well, Ecclesiastes is a book that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me, especially when I was younger. And this is not to discourage younger listeners. I I really think that even at a young age, you can pick up Ecclesiastes and try to discern what what God's telling us through it. But, you know, in some ways... Reading Ecclesiastes can be like reading in a, new, in a different language, right? You can make out some of the words like, 
Okay, curioso probably means curious, and Jorge probably means George, but it's, it's, it's really fuzzy, right? It's really fuzzy. And, but here's the thing is, God has given us this book uh, because the gospel is there, and, and Jesus is in it. And part of our time in it is to discover how this is so. So Ecclesiastes is wi- wisdom literature, okay? But it's not a text that we can just kind of cherry-pick verses for advice, okay? Like, this, isn't, this is not inspirational poster material, okay? This is not horoscope or fortune cookie stuff, right? This isn't, like, we can't reduce these things to memes, right? And make memes out of it for you post-millennials, right? <laughs> Uh, that's not how the book is intended to be read. And it could actually even be dangerous to do so. Let me give you an example. This is a bit of a spoiler alert, okay? Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 to 14. These are the last verses of this book, the very last ones. It says this, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment All the secret things, every secret thing, the good and the evil, okay? This is the conclusion of the book, okay? But if you you rip it out from the rest of the book, it'll sound heavy, even ungracious. It'll sound like a religion of works and duty, uh, like kind of clubbing you like a taskmaster, right? So you can't watch the end of the movie and try to figure out whether you like and agree with the characters, You can't have the professor write down the solution on the board and and say that you understand the problem, right? It it won't make any sense to you. You don't have enough information yet. And that's kind of like reading Ecclesiastes. You can't just take the conclusion and rip it out and say, okay, like this is like kind of fortune cookie wisdom. And the reason is because Ecclesiastes is a text that's building a case. Think of it more like a skillful attorney putting together a masterful argument in court. And we're the jury listening and considering the convincingness of the case. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 to 14 is the closing statement. It's him saying, I rest my case now. So I'm going to frame the conclusion of the book in another way. What if the subtitles to those verses that that I just had you listen to, what if the subtitles to fear God and keep his commandments, what if it means this? It means your life matters. And the reason it matters is because you matter to God. And so how we think about our life, fearing God rather than fearing ourselves and fearing this world, and what we do with it, keeping his commandments, that maybe this is charged with meaning. That's a very different way to receive those verses, isn't it? Fear God and keep his commandments because your life, as brief as it is, matters. It matters to this God. This is not fortune cookie stuff. But the opening verses kind of seem to deny that, right? So let's see how the preacher... Or in the Hebrew, the, how Kohelet, how Preacher Q builds his case, okay? And we will start with his opening statement. And for the f- next few weeks, we'll kind of take it two chapters at a time. 
And we'll kind of see what kind of wisdom there is for people who matter to God. And so the big idea, the big question today is, is there wisdom for control freaks? Because you and I are control freaks. Okay. Two very simple points. Life under the sun or life under the rain today and life under the sun, as in the sun, Jesus Christ. Let's look at first life under the sun, okay? The preacher says that we are control freaks because we live life under the sun. And he, he goes, he makes sure that we, we know this by kind of littering this throughout the text. In, in chapter 1, verse 3, you know, he, he says it, under the sun. In verse 9, he says, under the sun. In verse 14, and under the sun. In chapter 2, he'd say it another three to four times, okay? And we'll look at that in, in, in a moment. Well, what does this mean? This, what this means is we live in this finite and fallible world, okay? And we've been thrust into this existence and this world, and if we're honest, we're not sure what we're supposed to do with it. That's life under the sun, If you're a student, or maybe you, know, you remember what it's like to be a student, or maybe you're kind of trying to figure out work and, and your career, or maybe you're trying to figure out marriage or parenting or whatnot, it can be a bit of a rat race, right? At WashU, where I do campus ministry, um, there's a saying among students that you hear on any given week. I got three exams and two papers. I got three exams and two papers. What is your version of that in your life? The, the quarterly earnings report, the, the grading and the prepping if you're a teacher, the diapers and after-school uh, uh, activities, the performance reviews, right? In our world, in our society, you got a bunch of people busy doing stuff. And you look to the left and you look to the right and it seems like, well, they're doing it. I guess I should be too. How did our society, how did, how did you get caught up in that rat race? So at the campus, at WashU, for example, who, who's told these students that your GPA, that your internships, that the research positions and, and the credit hours that you're taking, that these are what you're supposed to be striving after? Who made these promises to you? Why do you believe in them? I'm betting that once upon a time ago, they didn't care about any of this. Like, I hope that there's like a five-year-old version of them that didn't care about this, right? Like, they weren't weighing their life based on all this and how well they're keeping up in the rat race. And whether we're on a campus or in a city or in a company or even in a church, the race goes on. We're thrust into this world, unsure of what we're supposed to be doing with it. People start striving, right? People start going. And so we start going and we start striving. And then what? There's an uncertainty about our life that perpetually haunts us. And sometimes we're able to kind of shove it off to the side and let it just kind of be background noise. But in harder moments, and we have those too, right? In harder moments... It might be the only tune that we hear. And maybe that's where you're at today. What is this all for? What is really gained? 
the author identifies himself as the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Scholars debate whether this is, you know, really Solomon or, you know, some other writer. I'm not sure if it's the most crucial thing, but I think the case is really strong that it is Solomon. And so I'm going to assume that it's him. And if you've ever read Ecclesiastes before, surely the opening words of it have stuck with you. Some translations say meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Other translations, like the one we have here today, say vanity of vanities. All is vanity. I said that the conclusion is that life matters. Your life matters. What's up with this? Well, actually, I think it's a bit of an imprecise English translation here. There isn't a good corresponding word in our language, so we're trying to capture the spirit of it. And I don't think it does like a, a fully adequate job. The word in Hebrew is hevel. Okay? Hebel. So imagine it saying, hebel of hebels. All is hevel. Now, hevel actually means vapor. A puff of air. It's a breath. All is vapor. All is like a puff of air. It's like the breath of air that you see on a cold night, right? It's there for a moment, and then it fades. Uh, Just over a week ago, I was on the beach in Panama City, Florida. And at the beach, for me, it was like the footprints that I left on the beach until the tide washed it away. It was the, I thought I left my mark, but it was only for a, a brief moment. It's a vapor that you can see and then fades. That's Hevel. That is life, is what he's saying. You actually already know this word. It's the same word used in the opening chapters of Genesis with Cain and Abel, Hebel, the sons of Adam and Eve. And if you know that story, Abel's life was but a vapor when his life was cut short, when Cain, his brother, killed him. Imagine Adam and Eve looking upon lifeless Abel, processing death for the first time. Abel breathed his last breath. His life was Hebel. It was a breath. We are all Abel's. Our life is too short. And deep down, we know that our time is limited. We might not go around saying YOLO, you only live once, but functionally, we do a whole lot of YOLOing, and we cope with it in all kinds of ways. Sometimes we numb ourselves. Sometimes we try to escape through different things. Sometimes we just pour ourselves into our vices. But most of the time, we set ourselves towards striving. That's what the preacher says. The preacher says in verses 14 and 17 that life is like a striving after wind. We look for something on this earth. We look for something in this life under the sun to be busy with, to strive after. If we can find ourselves and we can anchor ourselves to it, if we can find something and anchor ourselves to it, if we can kind of tether, tether our lives to it, maybe this uncontrollable, uncontrollable life will seem a little bit more controllable. We can strive towards career and success, towards romance, wealth, 
education, leisure, all kinds of things. But listen to verses 4 through 11. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north and around and around goes the wind. All streams run to the sea, but the sea's not full. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye isn't, isn't satisfied with seeing. The ear not filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done will be done, right? Look at nature, and then look at ourselves. It seems to be this endless cycle. There's a whole lot of activity. There's a whole lot of busyness, but not a lot of progress. It's kind of like the treadmill, You keep running and running and running, but you're still standing in the same very spot, right? You and I can't defeat the treadmill. It'll always have another step for you to take. And so the preacher says in verse 3, life under the sun, what have we gained by all our toil? In verse 9, life under the sun, what's new? New news is just old news happening to new people. Verse 14, life under the sun, it's like striving after the wind. You know what striving after the wind is? This is actually a shepherding word, okay? It actually means something more like corralling, okay? The herder, the rancher, corrals the animals back into the stable. Except instead of corralling animals, you and I, control freaks, we try to corral the wind, Right? It's like collecting the wind and filing the wind into the stable. It can't be done. So what do we try to do? We, if, I, if I eat and if I exercise well, if I can control my body, then I can control how others see me, my desirability, my longevity. If I can control my emotions, if I can land a good job, I can control my security. I can control my reputation and my purpose. If I carefully curate my social media presence, if I, if I make that perfect Instagram picture and post it with that perfect caption, or if I put, put out that YouTube channel, then I can be popular. If I map out my calendar, and my schedule, then I can control my mood, my productivity, my importance. If I have certain relationships then I can control my needs and my loneliness. If I have the best parenting techniques, I can control my children's behavior. Do you see the ways that we do this? Like, we don't live in the world of Harry Potter or or Aladdin. But if I can control these things, maybe I can manipulate the world around me, right? We use our our resumes and our networks and our lifestyles and our activities kind of like the beginnings to a spell as if we can manipulate the world around us. But verse 15 says, what is crooked cannot be made straight. What's lacking cannot be counted. What's crooked is crooked. What's not there isn't there. My son Justin once completely bent and knotted up a slinky, right? And you know how those things are. And he gives it to me and he says, fix it. (laughs) 
It was, I mean, it was, it was done, right? I can't make straight what's really crooked. We cannot undo the fall of Genesis 3. We cannot undo Genesis 3. The fall of Genesis has made life crooked in a way that we cannot undo. We cannot untwist the twistedness of life, the twistedness of our own heart. We cannot fill our hearts, which lack something, right? What's, what's lacking can't be counted. What's lacking is God. Our hearts have a God-shaped hole, and we try to fill it with everything else. The preacher says, I know this. I am with you in this. Because I tried to fill it with everything. I was a king, and I had so much at my disposal. I know all about that life, this life of trying to control what we have. And so in chapter 2, verses 1 through 21, we won't read it, together. We won't read it right now, but I can kind of sum it up. It's, 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 about, it's all about the many things that the preacher, that Solomon pursued to make his life straight, to make his heart full. He pursued pleasure and material things. He acquired all that was worth having. That's verses 1 through 11 in chapter 2. He pursued knowledge and learning. That's verses 12 through 17. He pursued work and projects. That's verses 18 through 21. And if I can just give you a a, a quick synopsis. He tried to fill his heart with possessions, with sex, and substances. He collected a bunch of degrees and searched philosophers and experts. He put in long hours at the office, invested in all kinds of enterprises, attached his names to all kinds of projects and causes and philanthropy. Buildings were named after him, Solomon's Temple. He wrote books. Some of them made it into the Bible. Celebrities would come and take selfies with him. Right? He did all this, but he couldn't change life or the world only cosmetically. He didn't know what to make of his life because it was all hevel. Everything he did would fade or be given to someone else. He's a philosopher king and will be forgotten like anybody else. Uh, If you're old enough to remember Madonna in her heyday, if, if you don't know Madonna, basically think Beyonce of our time, right? Um, she said this, she said this, I have an iron will and it has always been to conquer the horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to keep proving it. And my struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. This is life under the sun. It's always three exams and two papers. So much striving, so little progress. 
What good news is there for control freaks who live a life where all is hevel? I'm going to read for us chapter 2, just verses 22 through 26. If you have it in front of you, you can follow, but if not, just, just listen. What has a man from, from all the toil? In other words, all the pleasures, the knowledge, the labors. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils under the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is hevel, it's vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to, the, to one who pleases God. This also is hevel and a striving after wind. Life under the sun. God the sun. Fortunately, the preacher slips in a few verses at the end here. And what he's doing is he's injecting his first portion of wisdom, of good news, right? We are on our way to reaching his conclusion at the end. It's kind of like beating just a level in a video game before you, 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 you know, you have to beat other levels, right? And you get to the end, right? The final boss. And that's, that's, that's what he's kind of doing. He's kind of beating that first stage. And here in verses 24 to 26, he understood finally the right question to ask. Who do I belong to? Who do I belong to? Because if you know who you belong to, if you know the relational question, then you start to know the existential question. What is my Hebel life for? If you understand who you belong to, then you can start to understand what is this life for? And Solomon tells us, because we belong to God, we are finally free to work and to eat and drink and to find joy in all the things in this hevel life. We don't need to fear being not in control. We belong to the one who is in control. And this frees us because we can finally trade control for contentment. If you know you can't control life, by your work or your possessions or any of these things, you can finally just enjoy it. Every, if you've ever collected anything, all collectors know this about life because you're so busy trying to collect things, right? And you're worrying that if you, you, your whole, soul worries if I can collect it all, but you know that you can't collect it all because they just keep releasing new things for you to collect, right? Until finally you realize, no, I can just enjoy what I've collected. And that's kind of like what life is like. You can finally learn to enjoy the work that's in front of you, the people that are in front of you, the food and the drink that's in front of you. Verse 24 says, we can trust that everything is in God's hands and nothing is done apart from him. Only if you recognize that life is hevel, that, life, that our time is fleeting, then you'll see it for what it really is. You'll see that your life, your time is precious and beautiful 
and oh so fragile. But at the same time, it's not in danger of insignificance or being pointless because God will use it. It's only discouraging when we think we can, we can control our life. So where is our encouragement in a life that's hevel? When we see that our lives aren't about controlling it, but about pleasing God and receiving what we have as gifts from him. And we have a clearer vision of this than Solomon ever did because we see how Jesus pleased God. Jesus knew how hevel this life is. He knows how it's like shepherding the wind. But he entered into the heaviness of life with us, showing us how to receive it, how to receive all things. And then do you know what he did? He actually shepherded the wind. When the wind and storm came and his disciples were afraid, he hushed it with just a word. He tamed Wind. He corralled wind. <laughs> when death itself came, when the hebelness of life came to his doorstep, he tamed that too. If life is a breath, the gospel writers tell us that Jesus breathed his last breath and then he conquered death. Solomon asked, Is there ever anything new in this world? Is there anything new? And Jesus says, I did one new thing. I resurrected. That's never been done or seen before. I made straight what's crooked. I made your sinful heart full. And in doing so, he gave us a new kind of life. One that's full. One that's charged with meaning. We can live it to please God as Jesus has already lived out the pleasing life ahead of us. In fact, Jesus has already lived this week out perfectly for you. You are free to go into this week now and live it because he has already lived it perfectly. This life is about giving ourselves to the one who has controlled this life, who's in control. We can know a lot of things, but it's okay that we don't know everything. We can live a long time and it's okay that we don't live as long as we'd like. We can work and accomplish many things and it's okay that our work doesn't last forever because God will undo the fall and he'll make straight what's crooked to give our hearts what's lacking because God can turn our sin and make us clean. He can turn our striving and use it for his purposes. Jesus showed that not only can a brief life matter, in fact, his life was very brief. But a brief life is also not all there is. This life is so limited, yes. But it's only by acknowledging this limit that we're finally free to live within its limits. And so Ecclesiastes 1 through 2 tells us that life is hubble. Life is like a puff of air. And hubble, it's not a description of life without God. Hevel is a description of life for everyone. Whether we live with or without God, it's true for all of humanity. But Hevel is not a problem for the Christian because it drives us to the one who's in control. And so biblical wisdom is not about how to manage life. 
it, it does teach us some things about that. But biblical wisdom is not firstly about how to manage life. Biblical wisdom is about how little we can manage life. But there's a God who can hold us. You see, God doesn't just say from a distance, hey, you down there under the sun, worship me. Worship me who's above the sun. He doesn't do that. In fact, we were the ones who distanced ourselves from God, right? And so he is the one who drew near to us and says, let me show you back to the way of life, to eat and drink and labor with me. So as we open this book of Ecclesiastes, God is setting the stage. He's not depressing us. He's not asking us to... uh, uh, He's not... He's not saying, you know, everything is meaningless. But he's asking us to let go of the illusion because it's slipping through our fingers anyway. Let me end with this. There's a young billionaire who's been in the news a lot lately. His name is Yusaku Maezawa. Uh, if, you, if you've heard the name, uh, maybe it's because you've heard that he's first in line to go to the moon. Because he's the very first passenger for Elon Musk's SpaceX rocket ship to go to the moon. The other reason that he's been in the news is that he's been snatching up all the hottest art pieces on the auction block. Um, Recently, he bought a $110.5 million Jean-Michel Basquiat painting from 1982 called Untitled. it, It actually shattered art records. $110.5 million. Uh, Yusaku described his feelings of how the bidding went at the auction house. Okay? Interestingly, as the bids went past $60 million, he says that his confidence actually grew. I don't know about you, but certain muscles in my body would tighten. <laughs> if I, if I, I don't know about that life, about $60 million, but he says that he was not anxious at all. He knew what all the other bidders knew. He knew exactly what he was getting. Something that mattered to him. Something of great value. When he came into possession of the painting, he tweeted this out for the world to hear. He said this, Today, I'm a lucky man. You see, he's building a museum in his hometown that's going to display all the pieces that he's been adding to his growing collection, and this is going to be one of his centerpieces. When Jesus came to pay the price for us, he knew exactly what he was getting. People that matter. Someone of great value to him. Do you imagine Jesus saying something like that? When he was on the cross... Today, it is finished. I'm a lucky man. You and I are invited out of a life under the sun and into a life under the sun, Jesus. And I hope this is good news for you this morning, for those of us who are control freaks. Let's pray. God, it's the tale of our life that we are in search of something that can hold us, that we could control something that can make our uncontrollable life feel less uncontrollable. I pray that we would give ourselves afresh to you. Um, 
that you would help us to see that you are the one in control of all things and that you have given us your son and that we can start to live our life under him. Help us to do this this week. Would you do it for your glory and our good? In Jesus, amen.